0: Welcome to the Common Good Hour, where we talk about the practices, activities, and advocacy efforts of successful nonprofits and nonprofit leaders. I'm Drew Reynolds. And I am Roger Ciclupe. Today, we begin our series on Know Your Community. Uh, Very excited about this new series, drawing after our last one on Encounter, focusing on what it means to think about a community and how nonprofits can engage and work with their communities. But to do that, you really have to know your community well. So we're going to talk about how uh, good nonprofits make sure that they're, they're doing that work well. We've also invited Whitney Jackson and Monica Ackerley of Warwick Done Charities. Very excited about that episode. And also, Roger has a wonderful trivia question, which will bring <laughs> you back to the age of 90s basketball. So we're excited for this episode.
1: This is, I'm so stoked about this. I, I, and I really appreciate the conversation that we had with Whitney and Monica uh, representing Warwick Done Charities based out of Atlanta, Georgia. And our conversation really led me to think more about what community means and the concept of unity and that organization and, and other organizations how they are embedded in the community to help the community grow but then to also form unity so I'm really excited about this uh this episode that we're getting ready to to listen to
0: what I think is also really interesting about our in that interview too was thinking about the life of work done who's an amazing athlete and football player uh, but had his own personal experience around a question of housing in his own life, and from that um, experience that he had as a child growing up, thinking about how he can then uh, address that same problem so that other children and other families don't have that same issue, and that's what's such a beautiful thing about the nonprofit sector is that we have many times nonprofits that are formed out of uh, an uh, an experience, a shared experience from a, a shared community, and that 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 nonprofit or that organization. Is then leading the effort to bring about change in that same area, and this is just such a great example of seeing that happen.
1: Exactly, and work done for our listeners who may not be familiar uh, with work done. If you grew up in the '90s and you grew up watching college football, and then later on, uh, and then in, in, in NFL football, uh, work done may be a familiar name. But uh, he, what he's doing right now in his community comes from his experiences, a tragic event that happened in his life. Uh, his mother was murdered, and we're going to hear a little bit more about that in this episode. Um, but uh, from that, you know, as an 18-year-old, he became this head of the household, and then how he had to navigate everything being so young, and then coming out uh, after after football, and and really investing in his community based on all the experiences that he had from that moment. So uh, it was just an amazing episode. And I'm so glad that an uh, organization like Work Done Charities exists uh, in the community.
0: So before we, we get into this great interview, we also want to take a little bit of time at the top to talk about this theme of know your community. And many of you who are in the nonprofit sector out there, you know, you, you do know your communities well. You know, the people who um, receive services from, from your nonprofit, you know, the, the community that supports it financially. You know, the, the community of people and professionals who you work alongside with in your own organization or outside of it. And what we would like to do today is to invite you to continue to, to come back to that question of what is community and how that community is defined and how different communities within your community overlap one another based on a particular characteristic or shared experience or interest. And so we invite you to, to, to reflect with us on that meaning of community today um, as we dive into this episode. So by community, we mean a group of people who share a common place or experience or an interest. And we, a lot of times we think about this as somebody or a group in a particular neighborhood. Um, you can think of a neighborhood organization that might have a shared geographic area. Um, you might think of, um, you know, a, a nonprofit that's focused for a particular city or a particular town or even state or country. And these Communities are are oftentimes we think about it in terms of geographic terms, like if you hear something on the radio saying, oh, the community or I'm working in the community, you think of sometimes a a distinct place a neighborhood that has a strong sense of identity uh, associated with it. But communities do not necessarily have to fall across geographic lines either. Right. We have um, a particular racial or ethnic community, for example, that you might think of. Um, I know that Roger and I often talk about work in the Latino community in Charlotte because of, of our experience there. Um, you might also think of a religious community, so uh, a particular, uh, uh, like a Catholic community or a Hindu community, um, or you might think of uh, people who have a particular characteristic, so individuals or, or a community with disabilities, for example. We had on, you know, just a couple episodes back, um, Karen Mariner and Jeff Lax and Suzanne Boyd, who talked about um, their work uh, with the MS Society, and their community is, is people across the country who are living with MS, and so how that community is defined uh, changes in, uh, depending on, on the kind of area and the scope of your work, but can be really be defined in a lot of different ways. And you as a nonprofit leader, as well as the individuals who are, are served by your organization, are all a part of different communities. They, they have one characteristic that may make them a member of one or another community at a given, a given time. Um, and so lastly, too, you also might think of community of, around a shared interest like an advocacy organization that you know, we've had a lot of conversation uh, around racial justice and around um, around gun laws in, this, in in the last couple of weeks, and so you can think of a community of people who are share have a shared interest around changing a particular policy or advocating on a particular cause um, um, that come across maybe a lot of different sectors as well.
1: You know, I appreciate the conversation we're having about community because it takes me back to when. I first moved to North Carolina back in the eighties. And back in the eighties, rural North Carolina, there really weren't a lot of families who identified as Latino or Hispanic. And there was a group of families who came together because my, my dad's company offered him a position and we moved to North Carolina. And we created our own community within the greater community, right? Because we saw that we had similarities. We, the majority of the families were from South America so from Colombia, from Peru, uh, from Ecuador, and so we even though our common denominator may have been that we were we identified as Latino or, or Hispanic and we had different numerators because we represented different countries. However, that we found the similarities and the differences and we created and crafted our own community because it was important for us. We wanted to feel like we belonged to the greater community but part of that also meant that we had to develop a community within ourselves within our own uh familias so you know when i think about community i always think about i gravitate back to that time in my life when i didn't know what was going on really i was young but i did know that the formation of a community was really big and it, it made an impact in my life and how i uh, you know, moving forward towards towards my profession, you know, my education, et cetera, always valued the concept of community.
0: As you think about the types of challenges that many nonprofits, especially those who are working in human services and health and education, some of those more service oriented nonprofits, all of the social problems that face a community, um, and, you know, we have these shared identities that make up a community, but they also share something else in common, which is usually a challenge that they cannot solve on their own. And that's a really important thing to keep in mind in all of this, because we can sometimes get laser focused on helping a particular individual, especially if we think thinking, and if, you know, we think of organizations that might say, Hey, we're going to provide X, Y, or Z thing for people who need X, Y, or Z thing. And we can get laser focused on that individual person and their story of transformation, which is not not a wrong thing to do. Uh, but we have to think about that in the context of a broader community, because many times the problems that people are experiencing are not in isolation, but rather shared by that community. And so sometimes, too, the problems are so big that even... Uh, the response can actually only be solved through a larger, uh, either community means or policy means. And so we have to always be thinking about on that that sort of um, spectrum between individual and community.
1: You know, Drew, a, a current example I also have about community and the sense of belonging and, and, and unity is the U-City Family Zone, uh, which is part of the university area here in, in Charlotte, And it's composed of organizations and nonprofits and community leaders who are invested in the growth and sustainability of the university area, of the families and individuals who live, who participate, who engage in the university area. And so it's a great organization. It's it's an incredible concept. There were a lot of different individuals who who spearhead that initiative, uh, Dr. Mark Dehaven is one of them, uh, Darlene Heater uh, from U- U- University City Partners, uh, Wendy Mateo-Pasquale, the list goes on and on, but it was, it was the brainchild of how do we help the community with not only representation, but with access to resources, with access to information, with... The concept concept of community and investment and uh, and I really have appreciated the efforts that they have created here uh, within the university area. So if you get a chance listeners check it out you city family zone. Uh, we can put information um, in the notes and it's a it's a beautiful, I would say it, it's it's a beautiful model for what other communities can do um, For
0: uh, for that concept of unity. When we think about the challenges that that children and families uh, are facing, especially uh, children and families who are from low-income situations and circumstances or from otherwise marginalized conditions, we know that the problems they face are multifaceted. You might be a health organization, but health is not their only need. You might be an education organization, but education is not the only need. And so an organization like UC uh, City Family Zone is we have... Really, an organization of organizations. You might think of the term coalition, or um, you know, kind of, There's lots of different ways depending on kind of the model you're looking at, and that's an important thing to be thinking about too, because we can also think about community as a community of organizations coming together and a community um, that, ex, that that thinks past just the particular challenge or problem area that something is, is a particular organization is focused on. And the last thing I want to we want to touch on today uh, that as you're thinking about community is this notion of insidership and outsidership and in a nonprofit setting, uh, if you're, you know, working in a nonprofit, you might identify with the community that's being served. So for example, you might be someone who had the same kind of challenge or experience of the individuals who are receiving services or who are, who are otherwise, um, participating in your nonprofit. You might also be a person who wants to be an advocate, but who might not have had that experience yourself and that's where you there are advantages and disadvantages really to both as an insider you have a really shared deep understanding of what the community is experiencing and you have that knowledge and you have that ability to build relationships and um and, and really kind of have that key perspective and um, but sometimes as an outsider you also might bring with you resources and and um and other things that can benefit an organization that might only come from somebody who's able to see things from the outside. The challenge is for an outsider is that outsiders often make the mistake of not really fully understanding that community and not really being embedded within that community and sometimes making decisions on behalf of rather than alongside and with a community. So that's something we always have to be checking ourselves with in the nonprofit sector.
1: I appreciate that Drew, because when we think about nonprofit work or social sector work. You're right, it's, it's an organization or an idea coming from the outside to support a community from the inside. What I would challenge social sector leaders and individuals who are in the nonprofit world is to identify and invest people from within the community, right? Because they are the trusted individuals in the community, and then from there, you can start the growth and you can start the process of helping a community with whatever circumstance or challenges that they they may be experiencing, right? But it it's, where do you find the balance from the insider and outsidership, right? So how do you invest in somebody from within the community? How do you identify uh, these community promoters, right? And then from there, because they're trusted, then other people will be more willing to listen to the information that's being provided or participate uh, in the programs that the organization and nonprofit um, is setting forward to support the community.
0: And what you, you bring up to, I think, is, is such a huge point is representation. Um, and organizations cannot be made of outsiders. It never works if you have a, a nonprofit organization that is, is pure outsiders. And so you have to have that mix um, of insiders and outsiders because there's there's advantages that come with both, but there's also pitfalls, especially for the outsiders. I'm talking more about them than the insiders in this situation, right, um, that you have to be careful and aware of. Uh, But as we conclude our conversation today, too, there's some great resources that can help us think about communities and help us think about interventions and work at a community level. And one of my favorite, which I recommend every nonprofit take a look at, even if you don't see yourself as working at that level all that much in your mission, is something called the Community Toolbox. And it's from the University of Kansas. And when uh, I look and review all the the macro or community courses in social work, every single one of them cites this resource because it's so good. And you can access the Community Toolbox online. If you just Google Community Toolbox Kansas, it'll come up. But you can also go to the uh, direct link, which is ctb.ku.edu. And it'll show up. And it's a fantastic resource to share with your team and community and to take some time, you know, maybe when you're working this summer and you have a little bit of a break from your day to day to do even some of your own learning and professional development. It's a fantastic resource, And I uh, highly recommend that you check it out. And so with that, we'll um, get started here with our interview with uh, Whitney and Monica. But before we do that, we have to go on to our trivia.
1: It is now time for your favorite segment, listeners. It is time for trivia.
0: So Bet You Don't Remember is the 80s, 90s trivia game from The Common Good Hour. We ask a question and you, the listener, test your knowledge of the music, movies and culture of the 80s and 90s. Roger, can you ask our trivia question for this week? You know what, Drew? I think
1: that our listeners are going to have a wonderful time listening to this because it will take them back uh, way back to the 90s. Uh, And the 90s was an era of a lot of fun things, a lot of fun fads, and a lot of uh, great music, a lot of great movies, movies that we, movies and music that we recall now that take us back to that moment in time. And so, So for this episode's 80s and 90s trivia question, we will travel back in time to an era filled with Sony CD Walkman, Playstations, Nokia phones, Bugs Bunny, and yes, Michael Jordan. Yep, you guessed it, listeners. We're going back to 1996, the year that gave us Space Jam. This movie included big sports and Hollywood names like, of course, Michael Jordan, Charles Barkley, Patrick Ewing, Bill Murray, Danny DeVito, Larry Bird, Larry Johnson, and Muggsy Bogues. Listeners, we did some research and found that Space Jam is the highest-grossing basketball film of all time, with more than $90 in theaters. Betcha didn't know what other 90s movie basketball film was the previous
0: record holder. So I, I love this question, Roger, because I, at first I thought I had it. Like I, I was convinced that I had this one um, because I just I had a couple of '90s basketball movies that came to mind. And so you, know, you and I are texting back and forth, but I got it wrong the first time. And and what I realized, you got is it that, wrong
1: several times, man. I was okay, disappointed. Okay,
0: in you. you okay? Fair. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. There were there are so many '90s basketball films, and I was actually like thinking about. It. I was like man like 90s was just like the era of like michael jordan and the nba and then there was space jam and like basketball was just like in this like really just like golden age (laughs) for Yeah, uh, yeah for sports and music and and obviously for movies
1: there were there were a lot of good basketball films and this this may get some folks because because of the the number of basketball films that came out in the 90s so Listeners, let's see if you can get this week's trivia question. So listeners, if you think you know the name of the previous record holder of the largest grossing basketball film, post your answer to this episode's social media post on Twitter, Insta, or Facebook. We will randomly select one respondent who will receive a free Common Good Hour sticker in the mail.
0: And for those of you who tuned in last week and are just waiting on the edge of your seats to hear the answer to last week's trivia question, Roger, can you tell us the name of the music duo that launched George Michael's career?
1: So Drew, I was also disappointed in you with this one. Cause oh, you did on. not get this. Look, okay. <laughs> just,
0: <how> many, <laughs> I'm going to start starting making trivia questions and then stumping you. That's that's happening next week. All right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. So listeners, the name of the group. Wham. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm hoping that somebody got it out there. Wham. Who did not remember Wham. However, <laughs> We probably have a lot of listeners who remember Wham, but I bet they didn't know George Michael's do a partner.
0: And that was my Andrew Rich, situation. That, oh, sorry. No. Yeah,
1: you did. You, you didn't. You didn't know that one, Drew. You, <laughs> I stole that, the punchline from you. You disappointed me you. in that
0: one. I know. That's okay.
1: Right. Who is so, it, Drew? Come on, tell us.
0: <laughs> okay, so. Uh, Andrew Ridgely, the lesser known member of the duo Wham. And that was, the, I think, a, a key part of this trivia question. And for those of you listeners who are out there who are like, look, I got it. George, George Michael and Andrew Ridgely, you get the uh, star award for your 80s and 90s trivia, because that's a good that's, you know, and that, that, you know, your stuff.
1: You get two stickers. One for your car and one for your
0: fridge. There you go. And, you know, I have to say when I, when we did this, I, I had to say, look, Roger, I have to talk about like, we all know the song, uh, Wake Me Up Before You Go, right? It's a great jam. It's got such an awesome beat to it. Um, but the first song that I thought of by Wham is the song Last Christmas because it comes on every <laughs> holiday season. And I think it is the worst holiday song that there is. <laughs> Maybe that's an exaggeration. That's there a- could be others. <laughs>
1: There could be others, but I bet that song stayed in your mind for a bit after I told you this was going to be our trivia question. Oh, man.
0: But Wake Me Up Before You, It's a good one. It's got a good, you know, it, it especially like just gets you moving. So, so again, remember, um, if you know the answer to this week's question, um, that is focused on the other basketball film than Space Jam that was previously the record holder for the highest grossing basketball film of all time, which was also from the 90s. Post your answer to social media and you'll have a chance to win a Common Good Hour sticker. So thank you so much for playing along with us this week as we took a trip down memory lane with Bet You Don't Remember.
1: Bet You Don't Remember.
0: Today we are joined by two fantastic nonprofit professionals to guide us in a conversation about knowing your community. First, we welcome Whitney Jackson, Executive Director of Work Done Charities. Ms. Jackson brings with her over 18 years of nonprofit management and social services experience and is passionate about improving the quality of life for children and families. She holds a BA from Emory and a Master's in Social Work from Penn, and she has served in a wide variety of social work and nonprofit roles in Philadelphia, Charlotte, and Atlanta. Currently, Ms. Jackson oversees the day-to-day operations, fiscal management, staffing, and philanthropic endeavors of Warwick Dunn Charities, and is charged with working closely with the board of directors to fulfill its mission to execute Mr. Dunn's vision of breaking the cycle of generational poverty through improving lives, instilling hope, and inspiring communities. Whitney, welcome to the Come and Get Hour.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
0: We're always excited when we have MSWs
1: come through because not only are we MSWs, but Uh, We are actually celebrating uh, Social Work Month. It's March, and not only does March bring March Madness, which I'm so glad is back, minus the fact that Duke is not in the tournament, but it also brings us Social Work Month. So, uh, Whitney, we so greatly appreciate the work that you are doing, and I am equally as excited because we have another amazing social worker uh, joining us today, somebody who I admire, who I had the opportunity and the honor of being part of her academic MSW journey as as one of her professors here at UNC Charlotte. Um, and I'm going to give her a pass because she didn't stay in the CLT. She, she, hopped, she hopped on down 85 to the ATL. And so the ATL just, uh, you know, you guys are lucky down there because you have somebody amazing. And I'm, I want to introduce her now. So Monica Ackerley is a licensed master social worker, a motivational coach, a speaker, a consultant a singer, songwriter, recording artist, and self-care blogger and YouTuber, a mega, mega superstar. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think we've had a mega, mega superstar on this podcast and we are excited about having one today. Um, let me tell you a little bit more about Monica, y'all. Monica formerly worked in the corporate sector for 18 years before graduating from UNC Charlotte with her, whoo-hoo, Masters of Social Work degree in 2019. She's an active member of the National Association of Social Workers and launched her own company, Choosing Healthy Consulting, in 2020. She also serves on the Advisory Council at Work Done Charities in Atlanta, Georgia. Monica, welcome to the Common Good Hour.
3: Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here today.
0: So let's get right to it. Uh, Whitney, can you share a little about yourself beyond the bio and then also the work of Work Done Charities?
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, So I am a proud Georgia, Atlanta native, Georgia Peach, including Emory alum. Um, And then I moved to Philadelphia again to get my master's in social work degree from Penn and have really spent my nonprofit career um, working for um, nationally federated youth service nonprofits. Um, Everything from the YMCA, the Girl Scout Council, um, Boys and Girls Club, Big Brothers, Big Sisters. And then three years ago, I was, working outside of Charlotte as the executive director for the Salvation Army Boys and Girls Clubs of Gaston County, and got called back home to Atlanta to be the executive director of Warwick Dunn Charities. Obviously, being an Atlanta native, I was familiar with Mr. Dunn and his playing career as a Falcon, um, as well as his Homes for the Holidays program. There would always be a big splash in the AJC and on the news when those single-parent families uh, were recipients of the great gift from WDC, but in this role, I've been able to take just a much deeper dive in the impact that we make in the work that we do. Um, Essentially, we are inspired by Mr. Don and his life journey, which has been amazing. Um, And our mission is really to just empower and equip families to break that cycle of generational poverty and achieve a better quality of life for all. And so we do that from our flagship program, Homes for the Holidays, um, where we partner with an affordable housing provider to give a family uh, $5,000 in uh, down payment assistance and fully furnish and decorate the home. And then we have three other programs. a scholarship program called Hearts for Community Service, which is open to student residents of Georgia, Florida, and Louisiana. We have a nutrition and wellness program called Sculpt, and then we have a financial literacy program called Count on Your Future. Um, and so far, you know, we're based out of Atlanta, but particularly with homes for the holidays, we have been in 15 states and 24 different cities and growing and just really seek to serve those who need our resources the most.
1: Whitney, that's amazing. I I've, I've read some some of the things that you guys have done over you know gosh almost almost 20 years I reckon um, or 20 years or more since 1997 the impact that you've had on the community not only thanks to what what y'all are doing there through leadership but through incredible donors you've furnished 188 homes there there have been uh, 24 markets served in your capacity. 509 dependents served as well. 92% of families remain in homes, and almost close to $1 million in down payment assistance. That is just mind blowing. The work that that y'all are doing for for communities in order to have sustainable and social capital. How can we help communities? have upward mobilities, opportunities for upward mobility. So thank you for what you guys are doing.
2: You're welcome. Thank you.
1: (laughs) So Monica, I'm going to navigate over to you. And um, I was going to ask you to sing us a little tune because of the mega superstar that you are. But before I do that, I do want to ask you if you can share with us Um, how and why you got involved with Warwick Dunn Charities. And can you talk a little bit about your current role on the advisory council?
3: Sure. Um, So I initially got involved and learned about the organization through a mutual um, contact, which was Dr. Christian Friend. He's a business consultant with CA Friend Consulting um, in Charlotte. And so when he found out that I was moving to Atlanta um, in 2019, he thought that it would be amazing if Whitney and I could connect. And so um, it wasn't long after I moved to Atlanta that I decided to reach out to Whitney. And so we um, initially met over lunch and then um, she invited me to come out to some of the events that were occurring. And so one of the first events that I attended was the um, Counting Your Future event um, where they were um, learning financial literacy, not only for the parents, but also for the kids. And that, that, that alone just really drew me in. And I knew at that moment that I definitely wanted to get involved um, in a deeper way. And so that's why I decided to go ahead and join the advisory council. So, so I did join the advisory council. And um, in that role, I serve as an ambassador for the organization promoting the mission and vision of work done charities in my various networks as well as in the community to help increase the visibility and fundraising capacity of the charity. And so in addition, I also provide strategic advice and direct support to the operations of Work Done Charities and its programming nationally, including um, creating several blog posts for the um, Work Done Charities website, um, speaking on the importance of self-care at an annual Scope Pantry Fill Event, volunteering at the homes for the holiday celebrations, and so much more to support the organization. It's been an amazing experience and I have no regrets whatsoever.
0: <laughs> so, one of Worked on Charities' main goals is to help families with home furnishings and down payment assistance, as we've talked about. So, can you talk a little bit about why this was the area that Worked on Charities chose to focus on and kind of what that process looks like and how you intervene to address this challenge?
2: Absolutely. So, the Homes for the Holidays program. Um, as Roger mentioned, started back in 1997, when Mr. Dunn was a rookie playing for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And he knew that he wanted to do something that positively impacted the Tampa Bay community. This was his new professional home. Coach Dungey, Tony Dungey, was the coach at the time and a close friend and mentor and a strong father figure to him. And um, Wark had had this personal tragedy that actually made national attention that people may or may not be aware of. Currently, when he was a senior in high school in Baton Rouge at Catholic High School, um, he actually experienced the death of his mother. His mother was a Baton Rouge city police officer. She was working off duty at a Piggly Wiggly um, as a second job, trying to save up enough money for her and her six children, of which Work is the oldest, to get a down payment for a home. So um she was doing that, she went to make the night drop with the with the manager and they got ambushed by robbers and she got shot and killed. And this was actually 2 days after his 18th birthday. So as you can imagine, very a tragic life altering experience for him, but um being the positive person and just child of God that he is, um he was trying to figure out how do I turn you know, this, this tragedy into triumph, And so he knew he wanted to do something around at the time, single moms, cause his mom was a single mom, something around housing, because again, that's what his mom was doing. She was only making $36,000 a year. And so she had the second job to try to save up money for the down payment, to have a safe, stable home for her kids. And she lost her life and so, and thinking about how can I assist other at the time, single moms, um, have the opportunity and realize the dream of home ownership that my mom didn't have for us, this is what I can do, right? Like I I can't build the houses, but I can partner with builders to find single parent families, to give them down payment assistance, and to help offset them not going back into debt by furnishing the home by giving them the decor they need to make it feel not like a house, but a true home when they walk into the door, to fill the pantry with food, um, to give them the home care essentials that they might go out to Walmart and then try to spend hundreds of dollars to do um, and just give them that true fresh start to being a homeowner. And so again, almost 23 years later, you know we are still partnering with affordable housing providers a lot of time it's a habitat affiliate but not always it could be a community development corporation or um a city department uh to be able to nominate a single parent family we've done moms and dads at this point that have dependents in the home who are first-time homeowners um and and who, who live in one of our target markets which now like i said is expanding so um we just work very closely with those affiliates to be able to get the nominations and, and it's a secret that's the other part that a lot of people don't know is um the family doesn't know that they've been nominated right um so we work closely with those partners to keep it really hush hush until home celebration day and it's just magical uh because they have no idea what's happening some of them don't know who mr dunn is and that makes it even better uh, when they see that the gift and the blessing that has been bestowed upon them to reward them for taking that step in their journey towards home ownership.
1: What an amazing story. I mean, out of tragedy comes triumph, you know, and to to be a rookie and I mean, I, I don't know anything about that, right? To be a but I could imagine to be a rookie coming into the NFL and 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 to be 18 um, and still still a child, you know, uh, a, a, an 18-year-old is still a child and, and coming in with the weight of the world and the the expectation um that he had at 18 going because he played at Florida State. And so, and then from there coming to into the NFL and just kind of still having that weight of of not having the experience of of his mom. Um seeing his successful collegiate career because he had a very successful collegiate career while he was at Florida state. Um, you know, uh, and so, and then entering the NFL uh, and to have the mindset of starting something like this as a rookie is just, uh, it just a testament to his person, to who he is and to the, um, memory and honor of of his mother. So, um, thanks for sharing that with us. And, I'm just blown away. I I don't I don't I don't know if it'll ever happen, but if I ever get a chance to to meet Warren Dunn in person, I just want to give him a big old hug because that's just so inspiring, you know. And um. And so I I want to ask you another a question connected to that. Really, it's about um, if you can tell tell the listeners about Caden's way.
2: Absolutely. So, Caden is Warwick's nephew. Um, He is going to be turning 14 this year, and about the time that he was three, his sister, I'm sorry, his sister, his mother, who is Warwick's sister, um, had this idea that, you know, the family is blessed um how can we pay it forward so instead of people coming to caden's birthday party and giving him a lot of presents and things that he probably didn't need how can we raise money towards the families who are being served through work done charities and homes for the holidays so every year in honor of caden's birthday instead of Asking for, receiving, soliciting for presents, Um, we actually ask for donations to work done charities for Caden's Way, which is the fundraising arm of Homes for one of the fundraising arms of Homes for the Holidays. And so, through donations, monetary donations as well as gift cards, um, there is a child's room in a home in Atlanta that then Caden goes and shops for himself and picks out the items for that child's room and uses the funds from Caden's way to do his own youth-based philanthropic work and mission and so um it's just awesome and and Caden is very passionate about it you know he's old enough now to sort of independently have ideas and thoughts and you know when we select the family that's going to be a Caden's Way um, recipient and have a room you know I pick him up and we go shopping and he picks out everything and you know it's it's a beautiful thing to witness as a young man who who wants to do this and is so um impacted, positively influenced and impacted by his uncle's story and his grandmother's story, who he never had the opportunity to meet. Um It's just awesome.
1: You know, I, I because we're all social workers on this call right now, by the powers vested in us as social workers, we will officially knight Warwick and Caden social workers. <laughs> so... <laughs> How about and that?
2: Honorary y'all? social workers. They
1: love that. Honorary <laughs> social. <love> t- <laughs> Tell love them it. they are. So, um, <laughs> I'm going to ask a question, and this this can uh, be something that Monica or Whitney can answer. Um, so, on this podcast, uh, especially for this week, we are we are focusing on the theme of knowing your community. So, what are some ways that you build relationships with families you serve? to know the fullness of their challenges and needs, but also their hopes and dreams?
3: Um, I would say that um, we connect with our families by phone. You know, we call and check on them, especially during this pandemic, we've um, ramped, ramp, ratchet up that uh, process of reaching out to them, checking on them to see how they're doing, what needs do they have, things of that nature. We also communicate with them through mail um, every year We send out a Mother's Day card um, to all of our home for the holiday recipients. And, you know, just to say happy Mother's Day to you, to to let them know that we care about them and that we're thinking of them. We also send out mailings for our um, Hearts for Community Service uh, scholarships program where we inform um, students in Georgia and all the other states that we provide this scholarship to. Um, that hey, apply for our scholarship. We want to you know support you as you you know for, as you aspire to get higher education. So we um, definitely communicate on that level as well as through Zoom calls. Of course, with the pandemic, we've had to move to that um, platform um, to you know keep to stay safe and all of that. Um, and we also connect with our families through programming events that are hosted monthly. Um, we also ask that our families um, and other participants within our four, because we have four different you know, um, spheres, that um, they complete surveys for us so that we can take that feedback and develop programming to address those challenges, needs, hopes, and dreams that are within the scope of our mission. So that's what we do.
0: I love how you describe that, Monica, how it's, it begins with these relationships and conversations. You talked about means and mechanisms whether it's a phone call or a zoom call but also kind of alluding to the fact that you're walking with families on this journey um, that you know from the very beginning whether or not a family is still in their home or not um, and that you have developed you know surveys and outreach and different ways of communicating with uh, the community that you serve to really understand those unique needs and I was wondering if you could share a little bit, too, about those needs. What is it that the families you serve, um, what are some of the unique challenges that they're facing, and what is it that people who might be interested in work on Charities, but also in affordable housing, more broadly speaking, what are the unique challenges that those families face, and how is it that you think about that through your work at Worked on Charities?
2: Um, so, unfortunately, Drew, some of those challenges, because of the pandemic, are no longer really unique. Um, When you think about single parent families, obviously, you know, you have one income, uh, multiple dependents, and so your dollar only stretches so far. So, um, given that we are giving them the tools that they need both through our financial literacy count on your future, as well as these ongoing engagement opportunities that Monica highlighted to make sure that we are aware of what's happening in their households and if they have um, budgetary concerns or fall into some sort of hardship. Um, one of the things we were able to do last year was actually partner with PNC Bank to give all of our homes for the holidays recipient families a $500 Visa gift card so that they could pay utilities, get gas, get groceries, get school supplies. Um, One of the major uh, challenges that we heard from our parents during that time period was, you guys might be able to relate to this, When school went virtual, (laughs) when the world closed down and we were all working at home and learning at home, um, the grocery and utility bills skyrocketed, right? Many of our families are still receiving free or reduced lunch as well as breakfast and snacks in school. And now with the children being at home, they are eating all day. And so now mom and or dad, grandma, whomever, has to go to the grocery store multiple times a week to try to stock the fridge in the pantry where they were otherwise not necessarily doing that. Maybe they were buying you know, meals for dinners a few nights a week and making that stretch and then, of course, meals on the weekend. And so that was a tremendous need that was identified for us. Thankfully, um, we only had one family that we were aware of that um, actually lost her job due to a layoff because of the pandemic, but she was able to find something relatively quickly. And again, reached out to us to just keep us abreast of what was happening with her. Uh, One of the things that Monica alluded to is, um, you know, at Work Done Charities, we consider everyone from our staff to our volunteers, to the families and the participants that we serve, family. And so when you have a family member that's in a crisis or has a need, you try to figure out how to help them so um that's one of the, the major ways that we help them that i'd like to highlight
0: one thing that it, it makes me think about too that each of these families are all facing unique challenge like their own challenges like i've lost a job my child is home and eating more <laughs> or whatever it may be right um but it's also within this context of of affordable housing, broadly speaking. And certainly in both Charlotte and Atlanta, both cities are, are well known for being, that we're living in an affordable housing crisis alongside a pandemic. And so one question I'm curious for you all to share about is how can our, our listeners better understand affordable, the challenge of affordable housing in Atlanta? Or maybe what is the most misunderstood piece that you think that you see that you'd like to share with our listeners about affordable housing in these two cities?
2: Yes. Um, So one of the resources that we use in terms of just getting our data, right? Because we like to have an informed practice and informed programming um, is the Poor People's Campaign. And essentially um, there are 10 million people, and this is across the country, but again, we'll drill down to Atlanta and Charlotte, who are without housing or on the brink of homelessness. But at the same time, there's roughly about 18 million vacant homes across the country. So one of the needs that we are seeing is, it's not necessarily about a lack of of housing or or access, it is how how can we better, one, connect the folks who are on the brink of homelessness with the vacant housing opportunities, but more so it is about financial literacy piece and and the financing right so we talk about affordable housing but in the the for-profit sort of real estate world it's really about affordable financing and that's one of the many reasons why we love working and partnering with um, habitat for humanity because many times um, the homes that our participants purchase their monthly note their mortgage is oftentimes several hundred dollars less than the rent that they were paying. So it's a whole nother topic, but on top of it, it's compounded by, we know that there's predatory landlords and lenders out there who are also jacking up you know, rates in areas where there are largely communities of black and brown people who are low to moderate income and making a profit out off of that instead of giving them their basic need of housing. Um, but I say all that to say, With the habitat mortgages, they're interest free. So a lot of times it's about the loan, it's about the financing, um, to be able to get families in these houses, and making sure that we understand their needs and that they're also Looking at their budgets and able to afford them, right? So the other thing that we don't want to happen is that families get into houses and then they go into foreclosure, right? Which is one of the important reasons why we do the down payment assistance and we do the furnishings and decor because uh, we don't want them to go to rent a center per se and you know then start paying twenty dollars a month for a flat screen TV um, if we can get that donated, you know, from errands to to them. So it's about figuring out, you know, the affordability of the home for those families and for us to educate ourselves, you know, on those opportunities.
1: Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Whitney. Um, this this reminds me of, um, you know, we're talking, um, before we started recording the podcast, we were joking about like the comparison between ATL and the CLT. I think Drew said 704 versus the 404, right? And how the ATL stole Monica away from us, right? And and <laughs> called you, Whitney, back home. So I might have to do some uh I might have to do some persuading here to get y'all to come back up here to the CLT. But um, you know, one thing that's um that I've talked to students about in the classroom setting and then just in general in the scope of practice that, that I'm in is uh the Chetty report that came out um some years ago and it and it ranked Charlotte uh 50th out of 50th out of the big cities where up you know upward mobility is is not available like you know even though you know Charlotte is second to to New York City the you know, in regards to the financial world of the East Coast, right? Um, but it still it ranks 50th out of 50 and 50th uh, for individuals to get a leg up. You know, to be able to move upward. Um, I'm not sure where uh, Atlanta ranks, but I know Atlanta is also in the mix um, when you look at all these. You know, these 50 big cities in the U.S. Um, so just hearing you talk about that and knowing that work done charities are part of the process to help families gain that leg up in the upward mobility world and circle, right? So they break the cycle, right? And they start creating a new healthier cycle um, that encompasses all the systems that they that they're involved with and again as social workers or as helping professionals we, we you know we come from a very systems theory perspective so you know if you can if you can make a change in one part of the system that the individual is, is involved in then you impact all the other parts of the system right so all the other systems they're involved in so uh, so appreciative of the work that y'all are doing um really really appreciative
0: yeah roger and i think I've read a lot too that we've faced a lot of similar challenges here in Atlanta and that the inequality is there and the housing challenges are certainly still there and it's affecting a lot of urban areas um, beyond just Charlotte and Atlanta as well. So this is an enduring problem um, that requires people from across different sectors to come together. And Roger, I liked how you brought up systems theory and to come back to Whitney's example of what happens when you can cover the down payment and you can cover the, um, when you can cover the furnishings is that when that family walks in for their house for the first time they're not now w- using the money that they were going to spend on furnishing now they can put towards their utilities and their bills and so as you said like it has these ripple effects in other aspects of their lives and i like the, i really appreciate the way that you talked about that roger with that systems thinking so to um to our next question here is to both of you maybe we can start with monica um, I'd love to ask you all maybe for some advice or recommendations that you would give other nonprofit professionals, um, whether they're working in affordable housing or not, um, to help them to get to know their communities that they serve better. You know, many of our nonprofits sometimes, especially when they're first starting out, um, it, it can sometimes be a challenge to to really fully understand the the all the challenges that the individuals they serve are facing or the the community is facing. So, what advice would you give to people? are trying to build those relationships and really understand the problems in the communities that they're working in?
3: The advice I would give is to um, first meet the community where they are um, and you know start building those relationships and create relevant programming that will attract the communities um, that you serve. Um, And so you, you, you can do that by making those meaningful conversations, connections through conversations, whether it's by phone, by Zoom, um, things of that nature so that they can share their needs, their challenges and aspirations with the organization several times throughout the year. So just going back and checking and saying, you know, how can we serve you better? What are your needs? Things of that nature. And then that will help build connection because you're able to create a platform for them to be heard and with time, trust will be built as you follow up and follow through on those discussed topics that you, you know, had with them. I'm sure Whitney has something to add.
2: Yes, no, I totally agree, Monica. This is the social worker mindset. You know, I think I would, my advice to them is number one, start with finding your passion, right? Because you have to be authentic in your practice. Um, and for me, that also means being with the people right? So understanding what those challenges are um, in an authentic and organic way. Um, You'll love this, Roger. When I was in Charlotte, I spent um, the bulk of my career in West Charlotte, right? I was at the Stratford Richardson YMCA doing outreach. Um, I worked at Reed Park. And so for me, even though I didn't necessarily live in that community, I was always there and I was invested in the residents there. So that also meant at nights weekends after i had my daughter i actually put her at thompson child development center right there at clanton and west boulevard um, which is a head start and early head start site uh, because i believed in the mission and the vision and the work of that organization and that community every community has strengths and so because i was also seen as you know a community leader who who even though i didn't live there was personally invested in the success of West Charlotte. Um, I was able to connect you know in this authentic way, with the people there and understand their needs and to build trust. I mean, I think that's a huge um, topic that we don't always like to talk about is there can be distrust when people from outsiders come into a community and maybe have a savior mentality and think that they know better than the people that live there. No, you are the expert in your life, you know? So you tell me what you need and I'm here to help you get there. Um, And so, yeah, I would just say be with the people, find your passion, and live your, your authentic life.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate the way you talked about, um, certainly the saver complex that can sometimes come up with nonprofit work, but also the way you talked about being personally invested in the success of a community. An example of, you know, your child going to Head Start in that same community where you work. And I found that sometimes when I, in, in our sector, I feel like there are times when there's a temptation, when someone's like, I got an idea, I want to do it, I want to get going. And they start kind of moving the the things forward on what they're going to do, what programs or activities or or interventions or whatever it's going to be that they're going to do without having first taken those steps to have those meaningful, authentic engagements and relationships, um, to build the the trust that's needed and also to really understand the nature of the actual challenge that they're they're trying to solve um, and making sure that everybody's had a chance to have that conversation and a voice at the table before beginning. So thank you for sharing that.
1: And I wanted to, yeah, Whitney, you brought me way back to my, my days. Uh, I actually um, used to work for Thompson Child and Family Focus. And so uh, Thompson Child Development Center um, has, is connected to Thompson's Child and Family Focus. So I spent uh, many a time over there working uh, with the staff, um, uh, especially since my specialty was children and in, in, in family mental health. So I appreciate you mentioning them because that is a great organization, and they are providing um, a huge support for um, the community um, in that area. So I'm glad you mentioned that. So I wanted to um, I wanted to ask uh, Whitney a question about um, about Warwick Dunn. You know, he gosh, he has a lot of life accolades. Um, Not only did he play for Florida State under Coach Bobby Bowden, um, but, you know, 1993 national champs. uh, He also was an AP All-American member of Florida State University's men's four by 100 meter relay team. Um, Of course, he went on to play in the NFL uh, with the Bucks and the Falcons. And, um, you know, he won NFL AP uh, Offensive Rookie of the Year. He also has the Walter Payton NFL man of the year award, but I noticed on y'all's website that he also has uh, another award that he accepted, uh, the Muhammad Ali legacy award. And I was just wondering if you could talk about that a little bit, because you know, I'm trying to figure out with all these accolades that he has, he has, uh, he's collected over the years, um, you know, that, that one must also be very special because he's done a tremendous amount of work in the community. And I'm, I'm guessing that this has been given because of some of that work.
2: Absolutely, um, and that award is also very special to him because he had an opportunity to meet Muhammad Ali um, while he was still living, and you know really respect and admired not just his boxing career, but um, what he stood for in terms of social justice and impacting the community. Um, but yes, back in December of 2019, so this is pre-pandemic, you know we worked, we went to New York for the Sports Illustrated Sports Person of the Year Award celebration, and um, their crew had previously come to Atlanta, had filmed us some of our program participants, you know, wanted to hear um, the work done story, um, see the impact, you know, in person, and really highlight that during that, uh, that award ceremony. And so, um, ironically, work does not like awards, none of them at all, right? (laughs) He does. um, He feels like, you know, the work that he does is, is, it's just what you're supposed to do as a good person. Um, and so he's just a natural born humanitarian and doesn't really understand why you would celebrate someone doing what they're supposed to do. But he does accept them from time to time. Um, and I think it's great and it's a, it is a big deal and, and a tremendous honor to be recognized by, you know, your peers in the professional community um, and the philanthropic world for the impact that you've made. But um, that definitely was, was very special for him, but but mostly because it was named after Muhammad Ali and um, the relationship that he, he was able to have and just meeting him and just, you know, sit at his feet at one point in time and, and just Glean from him the greatness of, of Muhammad
1: Ali. You know, I think the interesting thing here is that you're right. I mean, I'm wondering how many of our listeners truly know the impact that work done has had on the community. And such a humble individual, you know, again, playing in the NFL, you're in the spotlight. You know, you have millions and millions of people watching you play, criticizing you, everything that you do. Whether when you do it great, you're praised. When you make a mistake, Oh my gosh, you're criticized to the core, um, but such a humble individual, not wanting people to really know all these things about him, right? And uh, it's pretty cool for Drew and I. So this is the second uh, uh, athlete-connected uh, interview that that we have uh, that we've had that we've been able to to record. The first one being with Gerard Littlejohn, um, and uh, he is the executive director of the Steve uh, Smith Family Foundation. Um, which is connected to Steve, Miss, Steve Smith Sr., uh, who played at the, with the Panthers and the, and the Ravens. And so again, another individual that, unless you kind of do your research, you you don't realize how much work Steve Smith has done uh, here in the community in Charlotte, and then also in Baltimore. And same thing with with Warwick Dunn and his work in the Atlanta area. So um, I'm so glad that we get a chance to to talk about this and to um, yeah to to shine the spotlight on work done not because of his NFL career, but be, because of his humanitarian, uh, uh, just because he's a humanitarian because he is doing this out of the out of from his heart. So before I jump into the uh, '80s '90s portion of our podcast, um, I do want to highlight uh, Monica here. You know, again, I mentioned earlier, listeners, in case you forgot that uh, we do have somebody who is uh, a singer-songwriter and a recording artist here and a a self-care blogger and YouTuber. So again, remember, mega, mega superstar. Monica, can you just tell us a little bit about that uh, path of being a singer-songwriter, recording artist, but you're a social worker too, which is amazing. How, how, How do the two intersect?
3: Wow, that's a really good question. Um, You know, uh, I started singing at the age of seven and I've been singing ever since in one way or or another. And um, when I was in college, I started um, recording. And so I was a part of several recordings um, from college throughout my years in groups, choirs, and things of that nature, even in small groups, being featured soloists and things of that nature. And so um, I would say in the 2000s, I decided that I wanted to release original music that I feel would impact the world in some way. Um, And so my first mission out the gate when I started singing was that I wanted to impact the world through word and through song. And so I believe it's just a, a way of the way I would say social work and my music kind of intersects is that I want to make an impact, a positive impact that will inspire, motivate, encourage, um, you know, just, you know, push people to 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 want better, um, to to have hope, you know, that things can get better. Mm-hmm. So I think that, that that is probably the intersection. And so awesome. I've been awesome. recording ever since I released a new song this year. So uh-huh. okay. Well, we're, gonna have to, I, uh,
1: <laughs> we're gonna have to plug it later. we gonna have, you have to give us all the uh all the links to what you what you what you've been doing so i had the honor and privilege of hearing you uh you sang at the uh 2019 uh, uh the uh hooding ceremony the the celebration ceremony that we have for all our msw graduates and so i was i was center stage because i was up on the yeah. stage and uh with all the other faculty and you got up there and man yeah. tears 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 were brought on to that stage that day. So, okay. Thanks for sharing that. I'm going to move on to our eighties and nineties, uh, uh, portion of our podcast. So for today's eighties and nineties question. All right. So the eighties and nineties gave us some classic television, child and teen characters like Punky Brewster, Webster, Michael P. Keaton, Arnold and Willis Jackson, Zach Morris, Theo Huxtable, Brandon and Brenda Walsh, Steve Urkel, Moesha, a.k.a. Brandy, and so many more. Guess, what 80s and 90s child or teen character best describes one of your siblings or a cousin or a close friend growing up and why?
3: I guess I'll go ahead and start. (laughs) Um, The character for me was Kim Parker. Um, She played on Moesha as a co-star it um, was played by Countess Vaughn. And she uh, also ended up being on the spinoff show from Moesha, which was called The Parkers uh, with Monique. It was amazing. Um, but anyway, it was one of my favorite shows. And one of the reasons was because she reminded me of my best friend growing up um, that I've known ever since elementary school. To this day, she's still my, one of my best friends. And uh, the reason why is because she loved to sing. Um, she was very animated. <laughs> and love to talk, you know, all the time. And so she just had a really great spirit about her. So that's why.
2: And for me, um, I was a kid who grew up watching The Cosby Show and Theo Huxtable, played by Malcolm Jamal Warner, um, reminded and probably still reminds me a little bit of my older brother, um, very, um, you know, <laughs> Going and funny, you know, had that friend, that sidekick cockroach, who also tried to get him in trouble. Sort of wanted to do right, but somehow always found himself doing wrong and getting in trouble with the parents. So, you know, the best, the best of intentions, but just never seemed to connect the dots fully. And so, as you know, the younger sibling, you know, I, I had a lot of times where I would overhear, or witness, you know, my my older brother getting into some trouble and not understanding how he found himself there. So he definitely reminded me of Theo.
1: <laughs> awesome i do i remember the episode in uh, where um theo got his ear uh, <laughs> his, his, ear uh his ear pierced <laughs> <laughs> and uh, his, his dad was trying to um like look at it and he would he would move one way and then the other way <laughs> that was funny That reminded me of the time when I got my ear pierced and I had to show up and my parents were like, what? (laughs) Yes, listeners, I had my ears pierced. Uh, Drew, what about you?
0: Oh, man, I don't even know how I'd answer this question, but I'm going to go a slightly different direction. Instead of doing a teen, I'll do child. And um, I would say that the character of Kevin McAllister on Home Alone reminded me of my little brother who is now much taller than I am and is off doing amazing things in his life. Um, But when we were kids, he he was a very um, creative and kind of funny kid and found really like amazing ways to kind of get himself just to the edge of in trouble, but not actually in trouble. Um, And so the way that, you know, Kevin is always doing booby traps or whatever in those movies (laughs) kind of reminded me of him. So that's mine. How about you, Roger?
1: Man, I'm going to I'm gonna go with Zach Morris and, from Save By the Bell and a dear friend of mine who unfortunately is long, no longer with us. Um, Matt Simpson, who I grew up with in in high school. And Matt was just one of those guys who, I mean, he was charismatic, he was funny. Uh, he was a friend to the core. Um, he would give you the shirt off his back um and you know everybody like matt um and uh and and you know some of the mischievous things that zach morris uh that you would see zach morris uh do throughout the episodes on saved by the bell you, you know matt and i and my other buddy matthew and my other buddy diego and just like the core of us um would be just as mischievous as zach morris maybe even a little bit more so we'll just leave it there listeners we don't want to take it too too deep but that's where i'm gonna go with um and uh yeah we'll stay we'll
0: stay with that So Whitney and Monica, thank you so much for spending time with us today to talk about the work of work done charities and affordable housing and how to support children and families um, uh, as they make their way towards success. So thank you so much for your time today.
2: Thank you. We appreciate the invitation. Thank
3: you so much.
0: Absolutely. And uh, you can find out more listeners um, about the work done charities um, online at wdc.org. And you can follow them on Instagram at WDC Charities. And on Facebook, you can kind of look them up and on Twitter on WD Charities as well. And we look forward to sharing more information from this episode in our show notes and on our website at www.commongooddata.com slash podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you all so much for joining us on the Common Good Hour this week, uh, which is produced by Common Good Data. You can access the show notes on our website at www.commongooddata.com podcast. Check us out on social media, uh, rate and review our podcast on, on Apple Podcasts, and we look forward to seeing you next week. So long.